and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's conversational corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Jobbery versus Snobbery. The Gilded Age is remembered as a time of enormous corruption, of lawmakers being bought off and paid for, officials given jobs solely because they were party men, and a general rotting out of government. Per this story, it was the progressive movement with its aiming for neutral, apolitical bureaucracies freed of political interference who ultimately saved the day. But how accurate is that story? And how much did we lose in terms of popular representative control of government in the United States? With me today to discuss these still burning issues is Hillsdale College professor Joe Postel, author of Bureaucracy in America. Joe, welcome. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So let me start with the question I ask almost all my uh, guests uh, in this series. Let us imagine an erstwhile Alexis de Tocqueville or perhaps a uh, liberal uh, Prussian or Russian bureaucrat comes to tour the United States uh, to, see, uh, to inquire into how government is done in practice at the state and uh, national levels. At the beginning of our period, say around 1865-66, in the middle around say the 1890s, and at the end uh, after the First World War. What would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Uh, I think this period, the the two periods, really, the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era that you are examining in this series, has enormous changes uh, from the beginning to the end of the period. So I think if uh, such a figure came to look at America, say, right after the Civil War, uh, they would see, first of all, a tremendous amount of tumult, simply because uh, Reconstruction is such a difficult question and there's a lot up in the air of course uh at the end of the civil war but i think they would see a a country that is run very much by state and local organizations and this gets to the question of our uh, the issue of our our discussion today run by party organizations more than anything else uh, that are state and local uh, in terms of their foundation by the middle of the period, say the 1890s, all of this is starting to come under intense scrutiny. And by the 1890s, you have already the, the enactment of a major civil service reform legislation, the Pendleton Act in 1883, uh, as well as an entire movement inside one of the two main parties, the so-called uh, half-breeds inside the Republican Party, who are civil service reformers, who see the parties as corrupt. And so even by the 1890s, you have major reforms that are attacking the parties and their dominance in American political and social life. And then by the end of the period, by the end of the progressive era, the parties have essentially been destroyed. Um, 
maybe the process has only begun. So it took, takes some time to play out, and that extends into the New Deal period and beyond. But by the end of the Progressive Era, say 1920, the parties have lost so much of their ability to organize, to mobilize voters, and to build constituencies, and to govern collectively and responsibly. So there's massive change, especially with regards to political parties during this period, and I think that's the thing that would strike a, a foreign observer more than anything else. While uh, listening to this description, I honestly had to wonder to myself, uh, and I say this because, for instance, uh, there was an interesting article um, in the New York Times, I forget where it was, uh, years ago, uh, where they talked about how there's a real uh, issue with the fact that nowadays almost everybody, pretty much everybody in Congress or almost everybody in Congress is someone who's gone to a college and often to an Ivy League college. There's very few plain people nowadays who go to Congress. And they said that all in all, it's not all that clear that the people running the show today are all that much more competent or better uh, at drafting laws than the folks uh, who went there in, say, 1875. And I honestly have to wonder, listening to the anger of the spoil system, now, I understand that people were angry at when people were outright bribed, but were the people who were appointed because of their party association really that incompetent or venal or or were, were, was the public really angry at the fact that people get appointed by the parties they elected, or were they uh, just angry at the corruption? I think what had happened to the parties that really angered your rank-and-file voters was that they were no longer representative of their constituents by, let's say, the 1880s, uh, or certainly by 1900. So the greatest defender of political parties during the Progressive Era, William Howard Taft, um, or at least one of the greatest defenders of parties, he acknowledged that there was corruption at the local level. In particular, what would happen is that the selection of delegates in the local uh, wards was basically controlled by the the party leaders. Votes were essentially stacked in favor of party uh, party leaders, and basically the elections of these delegates wasn't actually fair. That's a different kind of corruption, right? That's almost, it was basically tantamount to voter fraud. Um, and Taft loved political parties. He thought that they played an essential role in making a Republican government function well. But he said, you can keep political parties in this role while also just cleaning up some of the most obvious kind of uh, corruption and voter fraud from them. So I think this is the thing that really angered, um, that angered your rank and file voters, that essentially they felt like they had no real influence over the party. And the purpose of the party is to reflect the interests, the wishes, and, and the ideas of the local communities that they're supposed to be representing. So, um, you know, when a thing is corrupted, it is easier to attack the thing as if it's uh, in its corrupted form. But what the progressives did was they assumed that the corrupted, corrupted form of a party was essentially its, its actual form, its essential form. And so... Um, I think that's one of the main reasons why all of this happens to the parties during this period of time. They essentially became corrupt versions of, of their ideal selves. That's that's fascinating, and it and it definitely makes a lot of sense. I kind of like mutatis mutandis, how it became incredibly easy uh, and understandable to attack the free market system after the crash of twenty nine and uh, and thirty one in the Great Depression. You see the you see it at its worst, so you can say, well, capitalism in general is just bad. Um, but if I may uh, push push back a little bit, um, there's a very fascinating uh, book that I uh, got to read a few years ago that was suggested to me on, on 
by someone on Twitter. Uh, never let it be said that you never get anything done there. Uh, by a fellow named George Washington Plunkett, who was a member of the infamous Tammany Hall machine. And there he makes what, what I think must be one of the most full-throated defenses of the old system ever written down. Well, he gave it in speeches and it was written down by journalists, but ever written down. And he argues that, that his people were not directly corrupt. And not only that, but that getting people involved and having the party directly involved in community uh, and, and uh, municipal government means you have a much, means that you have a much more direct connection with city hall than he liked to mock uh, the civil service exams as basically uh, asking people all sorts of relevant historical knowledge and it's meant for a caste system or college professors. Uh, how, how fair an assessment do you think that defense is? How far do you think it can go? I love Plunkett's uh, ruminations on the role of parties in municipal government and Plunkett of Tammany Hall. Um, obviously, he's not a sophisticated thinker. He's a politician, and he talks like one. He conveys his ideas as if he's a politician. But I think that's actually what's so refreshing about his description of parties is that it's uh, through the eyes of somebody who's actually working out how a party is supposed to function in practice. Um, so I think... Uh, with that caveat, I think he actually is offering a very fair defense of what a party is. And if you want to understand what Plunkett is getting at from a, say, a more theoretical or refined point of view, the two sources I would say to pair with Plunkett would be first, uh, for, for an academic source, uh, Wilson Carey McWilliams, who is a famous historian who's inspired a lot of contemporary uh, scholars in history and in political science, a uh, short article called Parties as Civic Associations. And what McWilliams was saying is that if you think about a kind of organization that's supposed to connect government to the people, uh, that's supposed to make sure that the government is actually reflecting the interests of the community it's supposed to represent, that it's drawing the best talent from that community, and it's able to identify who the leaders, the future civic leaders are in a community, uh, what kind of an organization would that be? Well, it's essentially the kind of organization that Plunkett describes in his own coarse way in Plunkett of Tammany Hall. And so what McWilliams was saying was, um, we have this problem in a modern America of a government that seems deeply detached from its communities. Um, people don't trust it anymore, right? All of the surveys showing the trust in government uh, levels have declined radically over the last 50 years. Government is increasingly distant from us. The people who are part of the government, this gets back to a question you raised just a minute ago, uh, the people who are elected, the people who are appointed, again, this was one of Plunkett's points as well through the civil service system, the people who staff the government, either elected or appointed, tend to actually be from a narrow body of citizens, not representative of the whole community. And this obviously leads to a very tense relationship between the government and the people. And um, I think the reason for that is that we've lost the role of political parties in this country. We, uh, people are not connected to their parties, and the parties don't have the ability to draw out this talent, to connect the communities to, uh, to the government. And so um, I think what Plunkett was trying to get at was that uh, without political parties, a representative system of government doesn't work. He has a famous um, chapter, uh, it's the sixth chapter of his Plunkett of Tammany Hall. The title of it is, um, To Hold Your District, District, Study Human Nature and Act Accordingly. 
uh, and he says the last thing you want to do if you want to really be good at politics, you know, representing a community is you do not want to be an ideologue. You don't even really want to talk politics with people. You want to be a community leader. You want to be a servant of the people in your community. So he says, you know, I don't send any mail to any voters. That's rot. In fact, you'll lose votes rather than gain votes if you do that. Um, if you read books and go to college, you're actually going to be worse at politics. You have to unlearn everything you learned in college before you can actually be adept uh, in terms of uh, representing people. And um, the reason for that is that there's a sort of politics of personal relationship that the parties embody. And those personal relationships, because we are human beings of the nature of who we are, the personal relationships are critical to a well-functioning popular government. So um, so McWilliams, I think, kind of gets at the, the ideas that are lurking underneath uh, Plunkett's presentation. And then just the other thing I would recommend to your listeners as a, a partner with, with Plunkett are, I've already mentioned him, William Howard Taft, and then uh, one of his associates, Elihu Root, who are also very staunch defenders of the role of political parties. Um, and I know I've gone on for a little bit, so I'll just say one last thing in response to this really good question. Um, there's a great uh, article, which is probably going to turn into a book in the coming years, by a Johns Hopkins professor named Daniel Schlossman. And the, the article is called The Hollow Parties. And Schlossman's, it's a fantastic metaphor. What he's saying is that the, the political parties are hollow today. Think about people's attachments to the Republican or Democratic parties today. In a way, they look really strong and powerful. People vote party line. They vote straight ticket. Um, they attack the people from the other side of the aisle. Uh, right? In a way, we are more partisan than we've ever been. But there's something hollow about our attachment to these parties. We don't associate with each other in a Tocquevillian sense or in the sense that McWilliams or Plunkett were getting at. So um, parties are both really strong today and really weak. Uh, another way to put this is we have strong partisanship but weak parties. And so I think if you go back to Plunkett and these other sources, you see what we have lost really in abandoning this older model of a community-based party and the machines that necessarily stood behind those kinds of parties. So that's a great segue into my next question. Now that we've discussed the, uh, the one side of the uh, ledger, let's talk about the progressives. Um, Reading your book, by the way, Bureaucracy in America is a very good book. It's long, but very, very clearly written. I highly recommend it. Uh, reading your book and reading about how the progressive turn from 1900 onward um, and reading the arguments that they make for increasingly for a bureaucracy or a state government that they believe they have the national, in, they know the national interests, all the politicians all know private interests. Um, there, there, there were just a couple of questions that they raised that, when, even when I got to the end of the book, uh, that, uh, that, that, that uh, gets to uh, close to today, I found myself unsatisfactorily answered. And there were a couple of things. First of all, um, when it cut, say what you will about the spoil system, but if you didn't like the, the bums that the Republican Party brought in, you could elect the Democrats and bring in different kinds of bums and at the very least hold them accountable if they did something wrong. Uh, and, uh, and, if, uh, and if the courts did something wrong, Congress, uh, you thought the courts did something wrong, Congress could, uh, could pass a law uh, and change it. And, uh, and the, the branches really kind of checked each other. What the progressives sound like they were talking about was, a, was, a, was basically a, a, a body that's 
really only accountable to itself, almost like in an aristoc an arist a self-appointed aristocracy that runs against almost every American tradition, regardless of uh, what side of the political aisle you are on. Uh, and second of all, wherein this presumptuousness that we know the national interest better than the people who actually vote for different representatives and different interests from around the country. Like it really, like, where do they get off? Um, yeah, that's a good way to, to put it there at the end. Uh, thanks for, all, for recommending the book too. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, uh, I do think you're right. Some of these questions are not fully answered in the book. Um, I lost 50 pages in the editing process, so I suppose that's always a, a problem for authors. They they want to answer everything, and they have to confine themselves to the space constraints. Um, uh, you know, this first question about you know, who holds the bureaucracy accountable, and did the progressive progressives think anybody should hold the bureaucracy accountable? I think that question is one question that really divided the progressives uh, internally. And this is something that gets lost in the way that progressives of the early 20th century are presented in scholarship today. Um, the progressives are often portrayed as if they all agreed on everything and that there was unanimity on all the major questions. And I don't think that's true. I think progressives agreed on some fundamental things and then they disagreed on a lot of really important things that might have been close to fundamental. In a way, it's sort of like how scholars portrayed the founders 50 years ago that, you know, Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, they were all kind of doing the same thing. And then the more we studied that period, the more we realized that actually they had a lot of very strong disagreements internally. Um, and I think this issue, this question of how do you hold the bureaucracy accountable is one question that really divided the progressives. And the clearest way to see that division is by looking at the election of 1912 which is the critical moment in the progressive era. It's the critical moment in the progressive movement as a political movement. Um, you have essentially the top two finishers in the election are both progressives. And uh, one of them has run outside of the party system, has basically said it's time to end the two-party system completely and have a kind of presidential government where um, everything is run through the presidency. That's the new nationalism in Theodore Roosevelt's bully, uh, or Bull Moose Party. And then you have this other interesting, more nuanced, I guess, party, Woodrow Wilson's Democratic Party, and the New Freedom, which was his campaign slogan. And if you read the Wilson of 1912, it's so interesting. Um, Wilson is portrayed today as the greatest statist of the progressive uh, movement, and he turns out to be something like that when he becomes president of the United States. But in 1912, as he's running, he says things like, I don't want a smug lot of experts to sit around and play providence to us. Um, he says that the history of government, or the history of liberty is the history of limiting government, not of expanding it. And he sounds like a Jeffersonian individualist. Um, and I think Wilson's new freedom and the progressives who aligned with Wilson, especially somebody like Louis Brandeis, they were really afraid of the problem you're presenting, a bureaucracy that is not accountable to anybody. Um, and they were actually opposed to bureaucracy. I think you can identify in the progressive movement and even in contemporary progressivism a, a set of progressives who don't actually like bureaucracy, who think that bureaucracy is unaccountable to the people along exactly the lines you just presented in the question. So the strange thing is that after 1912, in spite of the fact that their leading guy won the election, that part of the progressive movement is essentially relegated to history. 
um, Wilson governs as Theodore Roosevelt had campaigned, and the more strident bureaucratic wing of the progressive movement essentially wins out. But there are still these dissenting progressives, Brandeis, Roscoe Pound would be another one later on, um, who really think we've lost something with this turn to bureaucracy, that we have a government that really now just runs by experts rather than a truly democratic government. So um, I think the progressives never reconciled that, that tension, at least intellectually, and then the sort of anti-democracy side of the progressive movement ended up just winning in the end. Speaking of uh, the bureaucracy beating out the, the traditional system of checks and balances in America, uh, one of the things you stress a lot in your book, and I think rightly so, is that until, until, the, until especially the New Deal, uh, the best way for a, an American citizen to be able to get, uh, to be able to uh, check uh, government excess was to sue them in court either for private redress or, as you said, they could sue them uh, on various public grounds. And for a long time, the courts were, as you said, the courts were often very aggressive, uh, not even accepting uh, findings of, necessarily accepting finding of, findings of facts of fact of government agents as a given, but rather uh, leaving it open as uh, for another party to, I guess, bring their own experts in. And of course, they did, definitely did not uh, yield to the government on the law. And yet, you, as you described, there's a slow process in which the court starts to yield. First, they yield on findings of fact, then they effectively yield on findings of law. Uh, and while you described the process, it was never really clear to me why. Why give up that power? Why give up? A, after all, you cannot be, uh, it's extremely unlikely you're going to be uh, impeached or removed. Uh, you have lifetime tenure. Why not uh, use that position to continue to be uh, the bulwark of the citizenry? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Why would the courts go along with essentially abandoning their power and turning it over to the to the administrative state? Um, and you know, this happens, I think, because of the two Roosevelts. Really, uh, the two Roosevelts who make the courts a central issue in their campaigns or presidencies. You know, Theodore Roosevelt first. Um, who runs in 1912 basically against the, the judiciary, basically saying that uh, every time the court renders a decision in term, terms of constitutional law that limits the power of the state, the people should, by a majority vote, be able to overturn that decision, which is a remarkable assertion that basically you could have a majority referendum on every judicial decision that interprets the Constitution. At that point, you have no Constitution. Um, so uh, that's, you know, that's Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, and then you have Franklin Roosevelt, who is much more obvious why the court backs off when FDR is president. Uh, and I think the infamous court packing scheme and just his assertion of the, the, the fact that the, he was elected and he has the popularity of the people, you know, behind him and the courts don't. Um, I think the courts were often intimidated by progressives who were open about trying to take away the power of the courts. And so there was, I think, you know, this is one way of describing it. I, I, I don't know if we have a definitive answer, but one way, one hypothesis would be that the courts saw that if they continued to interpret the law in the way that they understood it, that they would essentially be running against the will of the people, and especially as embodied in these very charismatic um, elected officials. So... 
uh, that could be one way of, of understanding why the courts basically gave up the power to review the decisions of administrative agencies that, um, you know, they were increasingly unpopular during the Progressive and New Deal periods. And the irony here, and this is something I play with in the book, is that uh, the it was the Progressives who hated the courts during the Progressive era because the courts were conservative and they sort of used the power of judicial review to check the excesses of government, to check the growth of government and so on. And of course, all of this reverses completely later on in the century. So so I don't have a full answer to that question, actually, but I think as I, I think about it, um, it has to be at least in part that the courts saw that they were the least democratic part of the government and that they were increasingly running up against the will of the people and they saw that as an untenable position for them to be in. So as this uh, fight is playing out uh, in the federal government, and as you note, uh, it didn't really reach full blossom until uh, the New Deal with the emergency of the Great Depression, uh, I was wondering, because uh, historian Alan Gelzo notes in a uh, review on this period, he said that the Gilded Age was the paramount era of state government activism. And I was curious to know who, what parties in what parts of the country uh, try to do in state and local governments what they were only really doing haltingly in the federal government at this point. Uh, yeah, I think Gelzo's assessment is exactly right. And uh, what he's talking about there is, at least in the first instance, the railroads um, and the Granger movement of, say, the 1870s and then heading into the early part of the 1880s. Um, and this gets to the question of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party during the, the Gilded Age. Um, the railroads are really the great issue that throws everything up in the air after the Civil War and, and basically at the end of Reconstruction. Because if you think about the two-party dynamic after the Civil War, the whole thing is framed in terms of that, that controversy. So you have the Northern Party of Lincoln, and then you have the Southern Party of Secession. Um, and then you have the West, which is increasingly developing and which is isolated until the railroads become so important to the national economy. And now what you have is this dynamic of farmers in the prairie states who are looking to uh, sell their excess production in eastern markets. And so the rates that railroads charge to transport the grain is a critical question. Um, as well as sort of other public utilities like grain elevators that store the grain and so forth. Uh, and so the problem is for the Western Prairie states, these are the populists that will emerge as a third party in 1892 and then be absorbed uh, into the Democratic Party eventually at the end of all of this mess, is they can't immediately jump to the party of, of the South because they are Northerners. They're free states. Um, we're thinking, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, Nebraska, so on. The, the party of the South is just not something that they can be a part of. But increasingly, they say that the Republican Party is the party of the Eastern banking interests. And so um, what happens is they make all of these reforms at the state level because they can't break through at the national level. And so the first railroad commissions are actually established. Uh, well, the first one is in Massachusetts, interestingly enough, in the late 1860s. But then the real wave of reforms comes in these uh, prairie states where they all set up, especially Illinois is like a, the first example. 
railroad commissions that mirror what the Interstate Commerce Commission is going to do eventually. So these uh, commissions set railroad rates, they set prices, and basically it's the attempt by the people to control these economic interests. Um, and you can see then in that movement the foundation of a kind of realignment of the two parties uh, that's going to take place over the course of the Gilded Age, but also this kind of state activism um, that the populists are engaging in. And, and so uh, I think what he's describing there is especially around the, the role of these railroad commissions. Okay. Um, before I uh, get to our last question about the relevance of today, uh, I, didn't know, I did note that in your book there is a, I guess, a, a real lacuna that you sort of stop with Wilson and then you skip over to FDR. But there was a whole decade in between where the Republicans, not just the Republicans, but mostly what were called then the Stan Patter Republicans, who were in charge and had united government uh, in Washington. And I was curious to know if there was any interest or attempts or efforts to roll back the progressive... Uh, uh, reforms or institutions or the way bureaucracy was run or did they say, you know what, damage has been done, let's try and keep it to a minimum? Uh, that's On the question of bureaucracy, I think they did not go after the great um, agencies that were created during the Progressive Era, like the Federal Trade Commission um, and the Federal Reserve System. Um, you're right, I don't talk about the 1920s very much in the book, and it's somewhat curious in part because I've written a lot about Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge and other places. So I've studied the period pretty, pretty closely and they do an enormous amount to reverse the progressive era um, in two really critical respects, both Harding and Coolidge. The first is basically the question of the size of government. So Wilson runs up enormous deficits thanks to World War I. Uh, the tax structure of the country is um, pretty onerous at the top levels. And this is mostly through the influence of Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon. Uh, both Harding and Coolidge get a series of tax cuts passed that are basically it's an enormous revolution in the way that income tax um, is levied in the country. Uh, it's probably the greatest conservative uh, accomplishment in the 20th century in terms of the reduction of taxes. And of course, we all think of Reagan when we think of that, but really Harding and Coolidge put Reagan to shame on that question, as well as on the expenditure side. Uh, uh, Harding and Coolidge dramatically reduced government spending by by amounts that are unfathomable today, like 30-40% reductions in federal spending. It's the sort of thing that you can't even imagine today. Um, so on the size of government, the, the 1920s, the Stan Patter Republicans, as you call them, they really did reverse much of what the progressives had done. And then on the other side, um, the, the 1920s Republicans rebuilt the party system for a very brief period of time. So a lot of the laws creating direct primaries were, were, were repealed by various states. And um, even the power structure inside Congress in terms of party leadership was rebuilt to some extent during the 1920s. But on the question of bureaucracy, you're right to suggest that the, the Coolidge and Harding really did not eliminate any of these regulatory bodies. They... Um, they sort of accepted them as they as they were. They appointed people, of course, to these agencies who would run them in a certain way, which is kind of the 
traditional strategy today of Republicans, which is not to abolish an agency, but to try to run it in such a way that it doesn't do very much. Um, and I think that's the extent uh, to which they tried to reverse the administrative state. Rather than repealing anything or abolishing anything, they just tried to run them, run these agencies in ways that were less burdensome to the people. Okay, uh, so that brings me uh, to my, uh, I guess my final question, thought, wondering. Um, we, we now are a century removed from the end of our period uh, government is absolutely enormous. It is almost entirely unaccountable, uh, regard, depending on which agency you don't like, and everybody has certain agencies they don't like. Uh, and from a Congress that, as you describe in the book, was extremely jealous of its authorities and prerogatives to the point that they would cross every T and dot every I in terms of very narrowly constraining the authority of any office they created, it feels like uh, the, the, the legal authority, which really has the power to rein it all in, has no interest in doing so. And the question is, is there any realistic chance uh, for that changing or do we just have to learn to live with unaccountable government? Yeah, that's sort of the million dollar question. Um, and I think that question links the two subjects we've been of going back and forth between during this chat, one being political parties and the other being bureaucracy. Um, my sense is that there are basically two modes of governance in American history. One is government by parties, the other is government by bureaucracy. And we had government by parties through Congress in the 19th century, and we have government by bureaucracy outside of the party system today. So my natural conclusion from that is if there's any hope to get out from under this kind of bureaucratic state that's been constructed over the last century, it has to be through the rebuilding of the, the alternative to the administrative state, which is the party system. And of course, if you think about Congress as being the place where this power can be taken back from the administrative state, the only way, in my view, that you'll get a Congress that's willing to act is if you give it the kind of uh, incentives that will enable it to act collectively, right? Congress, an individual member of Congress can't take power back from an agency. Congress has to do it collectively. And the problem with collective action in Congress is even when people are in the same party, they have different interests. You know, um, AOC and Joe Manchin, to take sort of, you know, the obvious example, they're both Democrats, but they don't vote the same way in every case and they don't think the same way. And so when you have a Congress filled with all of these different people who, even though they're from the same party, they have different impulses and different views, what is the thing that can get people in Congress to work together to try to take this power back? And to me, the only answer to that question is the political party. Um, when Republicans had the opportunity to take power back from the administrative state, uh, they had the House, they had the Senate, they had the presidency after Trump was elected in 2016. Uh, look who became the leader of the Republican Party in the House, Paul Ryan. He tried, uh, depending on your point of view, I suppose this is a debatable question, but he tried to push through some legislation that would change um, the amount of power that the administrative state had. And every time he tried to broker some sort of deal that would be acceptable to the full range of members of the Republican Party, the deal would fall apart. And I think that's because we have today the appearance 
of strong attachment to parties without the reality of real loyalty inside the parties. Republicans aren't really loyal to each other. Democrats aren't really loyal to each other. What unites them is opposition to the other party. And so um, in order to get Congress back in the game, so to speak, you need to have whatever needs to be in place to make Congress work efficiently. And that's got to be the political party. So I don't hold out a lot of hope for people all of a sudden rediscovering the virtues of party government. But uh, I never rule that sort of thing out because the kinds of things that have happened in American politics over the last eight years have told me that um, predictions are increasingly difficult about the future of American politics. And we're entering a time in which um, many more possibilities are being put on the table. So I hope that my preferred possibility, which is the return to party government and the restoration of Republican government is the way we go. Um, and I don't fully rule that out, although I have to admit I don't have a lot of hope for it. Well, as, a, uh, as a friend of mine likes to say, uh, I failed uh, Prophecy 101 in college. Uh, and you're right that the past d decade or so has really uh, shown us that a lot is possible. And here's hoping that that becomes a possibility. Professor Postel, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting conversation. Thanks for having me on.